Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show today. This is your host, Shannon Fisher, and we've got some very distinguished guests for you. We've got two former Senate majority leaders here to discuss the current state of things in Washington and the lack of bipartisanship and cooperation. Uh, we've really reached kind of a, a fever pitch of the gridlock and the culture of contentiousness, and I am thrilled to have them here. My two guests are Senator Tom Daschle, who is a senator from South Dakota and also Senator Trent Lott, who was a senator from Mississippi, and they worked together. They shared the job of Senate Majority Leader during a very unique time in American history when the Senate was split 50-50 and they, they each had a phone on their desks that was a direct line to the other so they could bypass the press and bypass their staff and really have open lines of communication so that they could talk through issues and perhaps get some things done. And right now, the level of partisanship citizenship is, uh, is extremely contentious and disconcerting, I think, mostly to the American public and also to legislators themselves. So these two senators have written a book entitled Crisis Point, and it is, it is about the, the crisis point to which we've been brought by this partisanship and by the gridlock in Washington. And in it, they offer historical perspective about how we've gotten to where we are today. And also they offer some, some real world solutions to really open communication and to bypass some of the the rhetoric that is happening right now and forge a spirit of cooperation. So, Senator Daschle, Senator Lott, welcome. Thank you, Shannon. Good to be with you. Thank you, Shannon. You summed it up quite well. Uh, <laughs> now we're ready to, to, to discuss the details. That's right. Well, both of you have said that uh, respect and trust are just paramount to building relationships in politics. And and you, you you had a phone that went directly to one another when you were working together. And, and people really don't have the, the luxury of having private conversations anymore and, and really having communication. So I'll start with a question for Senator Daschle. One of the major things themes that you've mentioned, uh, both in the book and in interviews, is the necessity of frequent open communication, especially with those on opposing sides of the issue. So what do you think is the best way to forge that communication when parties are often starting off discussions at a stalemate? Well, Shannon, that really is really, I think, at, at the heart of it, the, the, the challenge we face. And part of it is we just have to find a way to make sure that members of Congress stay in Washington long enough to be able to do that. You can't do it on the phone. You can't do it across the country. You've got to do it personally. You've got to have that relationship that starts just by being in town. And when you're, when you, when you leave on Thursday and come back on Tuesday and try to run the country on Wednesday, that's just impossible. The other thing is you've got to have outreach. The president needs to include the Congress. The Congress needs to reciprocate. The House and Senate need to uh, do a lot better job of communicating and, and building that relationship by meeting more regularly. There ought to be joint caucuses between Republicans and Democrats. There ought to be more opportunities to go to Camp David with the president. All of that communication is, is virtually non-existent today, and that's really one of the big problems we face. We've got to find those methods that allowed us to build the trust and the relationships that we had uh, when Trent and I had the opportunity to, to lead the Senate. 
Sure, sure. And it's it's much easier to build that trust from the ground up rather than to to rebuild trust once it's been broken. And Senator Lott, you said that the, the most important vote is the next vote and that we're going to have to answer for our past behavior. And so since we can't go back in time, uh, what advice would you give to the current Congress uh, about how to change their behavior to allow for that rebuilding of trust? Well, first of all, it's going to take uh, leadership. Men and women are going to have to find a way to communicate, develop that chemistry that we talk so much about. Uh, but they also need to give uh, uh, the members in the country a vision of where they where they want to go. But it it, it takes a, a lot of effort, and it begins, you know, maybe one step at a time. One of the things that Tom and I used to do, and we've urged others to do, you don't have to always go for the big gulp. You can maybe do something that's important, but it's it's smaller, clearly not partisan. Uh, you know, something like cybersecurity or some of our infrastructure needs in America, uh, that's affecting our lifestyles, you know, whether it's safe drinking water or, de- or decent roads and bridges. Mm-hmm. Focus on the things that are important, but maybe not the ones that blow us apart. You know, immigration reform obviously has been a big part of the debate. What do we do? What's the responsible thing to do? But there are solutions there. You ought to take it one step at a time. We do need to secure the border, but I'm not an advocate of some big wall. Uh, we've got technology to do that. We do need to have a guest worker program. We need to deal with people that are here that want to be, uh, you know, citizens or would like to have some legal way to stay here. Now, a lot of people say, oh, boy, I don't like the sound of that. But it's an issue that's not going to go away. We're going to have to have people willing to stand up and talk about it and see if we can find some solutions. Absolutely. And, and it seems that, uh, that in starting those conversations, the, the vitriol almost seems personal uh, between legislators because there's been so much fighting over the issues on which there is a lot of disagreement. Those lack of personal relationships, it, it, it kind of builds an environment of contempt. And so, Senator Daschle, you've said that you largely blame the airplane for that. So tell me a little bit about what you mean by that. Well, it's probably a little simplistic to say it that way, but I, that's exactly what I've, I've said many times. I, 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 the problem you have today is that the airplane has made it all too convenient uh, not to have your families in Washington, not to have any real presence in Washington. And so the typical schedule is to leave on Thursdays and uh, come back on Tuesdays and try to run the country uh, Tuesday night through Thursday morning. And um, as I said before, I mean, not only do you not – have the time to address all of the legislative uh, load that exists and the many complex and intricate challenges you face in public policy, but you don't get to know each other. And if you don't know each other, you can't communicate. And if you can't communicate, you can't really find the common ground and the compromise that is so necessary to running a complicated democratic republic like the United States. So that is all interconnected, and it comes down to the airplane. Uh, to a certain extent, what we've got to do is find a way to ensure that people use the airplane less and use their opportunity to govern here in Washington a lot more. And uh, and you've both said that uh, that transparency is is very necessary in politics. I know that Citizens United is something that's that's a hot topic. What transparency is needed, and and how can we bring that about? Well, you know, there's two sides of that coin. First of all, Tom and I do talk about and agree that some of the most important and historic decisions we've made were when we brought the the Senate together, Republican and Democrat, in the old Senate chamber with no press and sort of pulled our hearts out and tried to find a solution on things as basic as how do you proceed on impeachment. Mm -hmm. The other side of that, though, 
uh, is, uh, you know, the money in politics. And now we've got these super PACs. We're not real sure who contributes to them. Generally speaking, they do terribly negative stuff just attacking each other. I, I think you ought to at least have to disclose who you are, how much you're giving. Let the people decide whether that's good or bad. But uh, in the book, we talk about the fact that we do need some uh, uh, election reform or campaign reform in America. Campaigns go on so long. They cost so much. Members have to spend a huge amount of time every week raising money endlessly. And one of the ways maybe we could do that uh, is to see if we could shorten the campaigns. Maybe we should have, instead of what we're going through now, maybe a single primary day in America or maybe regional primaries. So uh, we need to make sure it's easy for people to vote. We'd like to, to suggest that we vote on Saturday instead of on Tuesday uh, to give people that are working five days a week a chance to be able to vote uh, without a lot of difficulty. I agree completely with what Trent just said. I, I think um, campaign reform and electoral reform is really critical. We, you know, we have uh, uh, many places in the country now where the primary is more important than the general election. And when the primary is more important, what you have are, uh, you know, the extremes on either side, uh, on the far right and the far left, that are very dominant. And uh, when that happens, um, I think it, it just takes away from the kind of uh, uh, conducive environment you need uh, to find the common ground that's so critical to governance. So uh, I think we've got to have electoral reform and campaign reform. Uh, we spend way too much money. Uh, on politics today and far too much time raising that money. And that's got to change if we're ever going to fix the system. Absolutely. I think there's, there's a, a strong consensus on that. And so talking about the, the primaries and, and, and caucuses, it's, it's become pretty clear that the activist base of both parties is kind of setting the tone. They're picking the candidates at every level of government, which is uh, sometimes putting people with relatively extreme views uh, vetted against one another. And so it used to be uh, back in the day that the parties would try to stay toward the center to appeal to the moderate voters. Uh, so uh, do you think there are fewer moderate voters, or do you think that the parties have become so powerful that their activist base is having more of the say than the average voter. For the oligarchy in this country, when you've got yeah. 154 families that contribute more than all the rest of the people in the country combined, and that's very troubling. But I think it's also true that, you know, with the primaries these days and the way the media has influenced how politics plays itself out, the extremes do have a much louder voice. I don't think, I still think the vast majority are are uh, to the right and left, but not the extreme. And I, I think we've given the extreme voices a lot more of a, a showcase, a lot more of an amplified voice uh, as a result of the social media in particular. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I think there's no question that the Republican Party is a, a, a lot more of the far right element in the party, and, and the Democrat uh, has more of the far left, you know, that uh, are exemplified in the, the primary election that we see going on right now between the two parties. Uh, look, I was always right of center, and I think Tom would say he was probably left of center. Uh, but we, So when you're dealing with uh, 99 of the United States senators, you can't say it, this is it. This is where it's going to be, take it or leave it. If you have that attitude, <laughs> you're going to have to leave it. You'll lose. You have to be prepared to discuss where the sweet spot is where you can actually get a result for the American people. I don't believe compromise is a, is a four-letter word. It's not a dirty word. Uh, it's how you respect other people's opinions and their positions and their regions, uh, their philosophical views, and you find a way to get a result. 
And and compromise is uh, it is somewhat viewed as as a four letter word at least by some or at least yeah. at least you sure. know by by the media. And so uh, like with, yeah. with leadership changing and the, the threat of being overthrown by those in your own party uh, for being willing to cooperate with the other side, it's festering. I mean we're we're so desensitized that during the last State of the Union, social media was a buzz more about. Paul Ryan's facial expressions than about the actual content of the speech. And so uh, I, I know that you both think leadership is the way to, to get past that. So what is your definition of the type of leadership that would, that would push us past that kind of environment into cooperation and bipartisanship? Well, I have an expression that Trent has heard uh, probably too many times, but it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, I think there is a lot of truth to it, that the best way to persuade is with your ears. In other words, you've got to be a good listener. And to be a good listener, you've got to be inclusive. You've got to reach out. And I don't think you have anywhere near the level of that uh, that you need. Uh, the president needs to reach out to members of Congress. The Congress needs to reach out across the aisle. The House needs to reach out to the Senate. You know, we have to do a lot more uh, work at inclusion. We've got to find ways to build up these relationships that have so deteriorated now that you hardly have anybody talking to each other anymore. And when that happens, you, you just can't govern. So that's basically where I think leaders need to put the emphasis. Be more inclusive. Listen more. Do less talking. Try to build up the kind of trust and confidence that we once had among ourselves, and I think you're going to see governance restored. Let me just add that I do think that leaders do have to lead. Um, you know, I think Paul Ryan is showing some good signs. He's, he is listening to members. He's gone back to letting committees do their work and building the, the, the support from the bottom up rather than making a unilateral decision and saying this is it. But the other side of it is leadership is not easy, and, and uh, leadership needs some followership. People have got to be prepared to work through the decision, but once a decision is made on behalf of the country, uh, you, you have to get a product, and that's what's stopped now. The House and Senate, uh, you know, really communicate with each other, and, and they're quite often not moving anything. Now, they, they moved a couple of bills late last year, but it wasn't pretty. You know, the omnibus appropriations bill at the end of the year, at least they did a highway bill. Mm -hmm. So they, you know, uh, leadership uh, could cost you your position, but, you know, these positions are not, uh, you know, something you inherit or pass on. Uh, There's something where you're supposed to be a citizen leader for a period of time. Right. I mean, right now we're kind of at the at the, at the ultimate stalemate, talking about the uh, the Supreme Court opening due to Justice Scalia's uh, passing. It, it's come out that there's definitely going to be uh, complete blocking of any nomination. And I know President Obama has come out and said that he he regrets the filibuster of of Justice Alito. It's now coming back with the current climate and with that whole the next vote is the most important vote that, that you had said earlier. Said Senator Lott, how do you think we can get through these next few months uh, dealing with this Supreme Court opening with a 4-4 split and everyone's panicked because both sides want, uh, you know, their ideology represented in that open side of the court. So for, for both of you, what advice would you have for your colleagues and your respective parties as to, as to how to diffuse this situation? Well, I, I, think, Tom. I was just going to say, I, I, I think... Legislators need to do their job, and uh, 
you know, this is uh, this is not unprecedented. Uh, Ronald Reagan uh, nominated uh, uh, Justice Kennedy uh, in his last year, in his eighth year in office, and uh, the Democrats were in charge then, and and uh, he was uh, he was confirmed unanimously, which is really almost unheard of these days. So it, it happens, uh, you know. But Democrats and Republicans can both exchange their scripts. It depends on who's the, in the majority and who's president, uh, depending on what script you read. But currently, the Republicans have the majority, and the Democrats are in the White House, and so you've got that script. But but uh, it wasn't that long ago where the roles were reversed again. So I think basically everybody's got to do what the Constitution requires, and you know it, it has to be deliberative. Uh, you know, members of Congress can vote. Uh, uh, no, or they 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 can vote, uh, you know, uh, uh, in favor of a nominee. But there has to be a process, and I think to hold up the process for a whole year is probably uh, is another symptom of of just how dysfunctional things can be. Sure. Yeah, I think it is. Excuse me, Tom, but I I think you're right. It is a, a sign of the times that we're in. Uh, the president has uh, a right and a constitutional responsibility, perhaps, to send up a nominee, and uh, the Senate uh, has a responsibility to consider it, uh, reject it, uh, pass it, or maybe not act on it. I had uh, two nominees to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals when I was still in the Senate uh, that uh, President George W. Bush sent to the Senate, uh, and they were both killed by filibusters. So I've learned over the years about uh, the federal judiciary uh, neither side has particularly clean hands and uh, in, in what they've done on federal nominees. But, uh, you know, I, you know how we deal with that this year, uh, part of it will depend on, well, what, who does the president send up? Now, the Republicans say they're not going to consider it, but uh, if the president sent somebody that would be broadly supported, then I don't know, uh, they might have to reconsider. Sure. So you guys both think there there is a possibility of overcoming any sort of obstructionism and actually getting this done this year. <laughs> no, I didn't say that. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm very dubious. <laughs> I'm doubtful they're going to get it done this year. But, uh, you know, like in life, politics uh, has amazing uh, twists and turns. So you never can be totally sure who's going to be the nominee or who's going to be president. Lord help us. We better get it right. That's right. That's well, I, right. I think both parties, um, you know, are uh, they do what they do at their own peril. I mean, I think the American people are so frustrated and so angry at the dysfunction and the lack of getting things done that it, uh, there's no political advantage not to doing things. And, and I think it's really critical that we uh, that we try to change the, the the tone and the attitude and the the political environment, and it's it, you've got to start somewhere. But I think Trent's exactly right. No, neither party has any clean hands here. What kind of work do you expect to do moving forward to uh, strengthen the spirit of cooperation and and possibly help uh, implement some real camaraderie and productivity out there? One of the things we've got to do, we're going to have a clean slate beginning uh, right after the election. You're going to have a, a new president. You're going to have... Uh, a whole new administration. Uh, chances are you're going to have a lot of new members of Congress in both the House and the Senate. Every every new election uh, presents a, a new opportunity to kind of uh, realign the chairs and do the do the kind of uh, organizational work to try to build a more conducive political and, and legislative environment. I, I really think that that's our next real hope. So what? I hope we can do between now and then is to help set that stage. 
How can we think about how we can become more productive? What are the kinds of things a new president should do? And if we can help set that stage and raise the expectation that something can be done, maybe we can maximize the value of this yet uh, this 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 new cycle. Yeah, and that's what the book is about. And you know, Tom and I do uh, op eds together for in, in newspapers. We talk to our former colleagues about uh, our experiences. Uh, we we work at the bipartisan policy center. We bring in bipartisan groups of total mix. Uh, you know, I, I worked on a couple of years. Uh, on uh, some uh, issues like, like in, in energy, we had uh, professors and we had labor and we had railroads, we had various energy aspects, and we uh, it was totally bipartisan and philosophical. But yet, after two years, we came to a conclusion, made a lot of recommendations, and then we didn't just sit on it. We took it to the congressmen and women that chaired the committees and said, here's some things we hope you'll consider. So we're going to continue to work. Uh, in that approach. Well, fantastic. Well, I I can't thank you both enough for your time today, Senator Daschle, Senator Lott. Uh, thank you for writing this book and for for coming to talk to us. And I I wish you luck moving forward. And uh, let's let's hope that we can actually get some cooperation happening. Thank you so much, Senator. You bet. All right. Okay. Good to talk to you, Shannon. Thank you. Thank very you very much, much for Shannon. For the authentic woman on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, this is Shannon Fisher. See you next time. Yeah.